Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. It's our goal here at Res Talk to communicate some late breaking news and thoughtful insights about a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. So whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you'll want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. The message is clear. HVAC equipment is often the largest energy-consuming system in a home. Now, while listeners likely know about blower door and duct leakage tests, what impact do blower watt draw and refrigerant charge have on HVAC energy use? And what can we learn from an HVAC expert with so much experience. Today's podcast continues down the technical trail with the latest installment of a three-part series on cracking open the details of the NC ResNet ACA ICC Standard 310-310. Now, previous episodes covered the other aspects of the standard, episode 99 with Alex Meany of Mean HVAC on the HVAC system design aspect, and episode 105 with Steve Rogers of the Energy Conservatory Tech on duct leakage and airflow. On today's episode, we're joined by Jim Bergman, president of MeasureQuick and an HVAC systems measurement and diagnostics expert. Jim will take us on a deep dive. It's very technical, but very informative. He'll introduce us to the technology used to measure blower fan watt draw and refrigerant charge and the power of proper diagnostic methods and techniques. After listening, you'll be better able to understand the why and how of getting these important parameters properly dialed in. Now, there's some links in the show notes related to today's podcast where you can learn more. So let's have Jim take it away and tell us all about unpacking the ANSI ResNet standard regarding tasks four and five, blower watt draw and refrigerant charge. Good morning, Jim. Hey, how are you doing, Bill? Good. Jim, for the listeners out there who are not familiar with you and your background, Give us a couple minute summary of like how did you get to be in the place where you're talking about authoritatively a couple of aspects of the standard? Oh goodness. I have an eclectic background growing up in the industry with my father. He was a heating and air conditioning technician and then went into the Navy and did heating and air conditioning in the service and the CBs, was a utilities man, heating and air conditioning, plumbing, and then from there obviously into University of Akron to engineering school and then education. So I've just crossed a lot of different verticals, I think, in my career and learned a lot of different things. And I think probably teaching was probably the most impactful because that's also where I really had time to look at things and understand them from very intimate perspective of how things worked. And we got tied in back at that time with Testo, learning a lot about instrumentation and measurement and then how all those measurements interacted with each other and they're on the software development, designing the I-manifold, and then where we're at today, measure quick. So a lot of teaching and test and measurement experience, a lot of real practical experience that allows me to talk at a little bit different level than most people. But also I think I've really been lucky to act as a liaison between people in the field and engineers so I can help communicate pretty complex topics, and sort, but also from the technician point, see where the hurdles are getting the stuff done, which in standards development is like super important because 
we can write all the standards we want, but if people can't really achieve the goals of the standard, then they never get used. And I've seen it happen where a lot of people who are teaching helps them learn. You have to learn it from so many different perspectives, as you mentioned. So that kind of gives you a unique way to help us dive into these two aspects of the standard. The standard itself, ResNet Standard 310, you're familiar with that. So talk a little bit about just the overview of why you think it's important and how it operates. It comes down to it and a lot of elements. We got to make sure we're doing a few things right when we're working with the standards. So we got to make sure that obviously we're designing that system. We're making sure the air is going where it's supposed to go. We're making sure that the right amount of air is getting where it's supposed to go. And we're not using excessive amounts of energy and then the system's charged properly. So if you think about it, like from the field service technician, there's only two things they can set up are airflow and refrigerant charge. But in order for them to get the airflow correct, they obviously have to have some design elements there to say, okay, here's how much airflow we're going to have total, and here's how we're going to distribute that airflow to those rooms. And then we got to make sure that that airflow obviously doesn't leak out of the ducts. And we got to make sure the duct system's designed so that it doesn't use excessive amounts of current to move the air around. So there's a lot of interacting elements in our industry. Most systems are built rather than designed. So it's not plug and play. Yeah. Yeah. They walk into the home. They use some back of the napkin math, square footage per ton type tools. and But not in the standard. <laughs> oh, not in the standard. Not for sure. Yeah. But outside of the standard, the reason that we're trying to develop these standards is the tremendous amount of energy waste in our industry. We're not only responsible for tremendous amounts of energy usage, but even more so tremendous amounts of energy waste. And as more and more people are building larger and larger homes, we really have to be better stewards of the energy and also now of our raw materials. I mean, if you think about how hard it is just to get a system today, we can't afford to put one in and then have it fail and then have to tear it out and put another one in because the first one was so hard to get. So these are all important elements of why we'd want to have a standard. And a standard, I think, too, it's real important just to say a standard is a reasonable standard of care. It's like what a person who's a professional in our industry would do to assure that that system is designed and tested and working properly when they're done with a job. We don't talk about that a lot, but I think. Understanding what a standard is, it's a standard of care, and it's really important. So when we get a consensus as an industry, we're all sort of agreeing as, hey, these are the most important elements of an HVAC system to get everything right. Got it. We talked a little bit about the standard overview. Any quick comments on design review, duct leakage, and blower fan airflow before we get into the last two tasks? Yes. Please. You are never without comments, so. <laughs> no, no, I, for me, because we live in the Northeast, and a duct leakage has never really been a big deal for me, and personally, because we're, all the duct leakage is typically in the conditioned space, so they've always said whenever we read studies and things, well, it's duct leakage outside the conditioned space that we're really concerned with, and I really got an education on that, how wrong that is when I started working with TrueFlow Grid, because we use an estimated airflow calculation in MeasureQuick, which does a very good job of figuring out how much air goes across the evaporator coil. And I'm in a lab out here and I'm doing some testing. And it seems like always my biggest problems come in the lab for whatever reason. But I'm doing some testing in the lab and I'm realizing TrueFlow and MeasureQuick aren't really agreeing. And I knew they should agree. And I've seen them agree consistently on a lot of other duct systems. And I was chasing around a duct leakage problem. And it was very complex, even for somebody like me, because I hadn't seen it before. 
I think I've got a lot of experience. I think I've seen a lot of things, but it threw me for a loop and it was challenging. And it really made me realize how much our duct systems leak through such tiny little holes. And just to put this in perspective, I had a three-eighths hole in a duct and I was using a duct blaster to actually test how much duct leakage I had. I covered up that three-eighths hole and it was one CFM. And so I just got to visualizing in my head, okay, if I were to blow up a balloon like to one cubic foot with a 25 pascals of pressure, how long would it take me to do that? And it's like, okay, wow, this is starting to make sense. In a minute, that'd be really easy to blow up that balloon to one cubic foot of air. I just had to visualize it in my head because I just didn't realize how small of a hole introduced so much duct leakage in. And that like that impacts the system for its entire existence. Yep. It's additive. Just keeps on going and going and going. And we're pulling air from areas we don't necessarily want to pull it from, like radon gas out of a basement. We're moving around the house or dust or things like that leaking into those holes. And then I had AeroSeal done in my house. And I know for a fact that made a huge impact on getting the air where it needed to go. So whether you're inside or outside the conditioned space, I think duct leakage is probably one of the most understated elements of the standard that we really need to focus on because it does make a much more significant impact than I ever appreciated it in my career. And I've just really learned that in the last year or so. Very cool. For listeners, if you go back to episode 99 of Res Talk, Alex Meany talks about design review. And episode 106 is where Steve Rogers talks about total duct leakage and blower fan airflow in detail. So now let's dig into the detail now with you, Jim, on blower fan watt draw. Why is it important to measure that? So if you think about fans, obviously we're looking at the efficiency of the fan, right? Fan watt draw is just simply how many watts of power are we consuming per CFM or per cubic foot of air moved throughout the house? And it used to be like we were, the fan only ran when the air conditioning system ran. But today we're using that same blower to control things like ventilation in a home or air filtration in a home, or distribution of dehumidified or humidified air in a home. So the fan, in many cases, is operating continuously, if not a lot more, like on demand settings, to move air throughout a structure. And additionally, what most people don't ever talk about is how expensive not only these fans become to operate, but how expensive the fans are in general. And so when you start exceeding the fan's capability because you're running at a high fan watt draw, all of a sudden you have a motor that to the consumer might be $800 to $1,000 that you're putting at risk for premature failure and sometimes very early premature failure. My system, I've had my ECM blower for almost 15, 18 years now, and it's never had a problem. Yet we see some that are failing within the first year. And they're usually failing because the motor is ramping up to such a high speed to try and overcome poor duct design. And so there's two elements we've got to look at. You would sense that through the watt draw? You would sense that through the watt draw. Yeah, you'd sense it through the watt draw. And you'd also sense it by the sound of a jet engine taking off every time your unit starts up. But these are things that We always look at it from an energy standpoint, but I think we also got to look at it from an economic standpoint, a cost of ownership. And if that motor fails two or three times in your lifetime, the amount of energy it takes to actually produce that motor probably far exceeds what it's consuming 
when you're going to consider also the amount of fuel it took to take it back to get it warranted and the number of people that had to touch it and then manufacturing of the product. So we want to, at all costs, avoid premature failure of these types of products because that also has significant energy impacts most people don't consider. Getting it right the first time is critical. It's absolutely critical. So fan watt draw in itself, we're getting a measurement of airflow and dividing it by the number of watts, and you get just watts per CFM of air moved. And typically, we want to see about less than 0.58, so about half a watt per CFM. So obviously, a larger fan is going to move more air and require more watt draw. What's cool, with if you think about some of the stuff we're doing now with variable speed equipment, two-stage equipment, because like single stage is always going to move, let's say a five ton always move 2000 CFM airflow. So even on a circulation mode, we may be moving more air than we, we need to just get air distributed throughout the house. Some of these equipment now, we can actually slow that fan down and drop down and increase the efficiency of the fan. And it actually increases substantially. The watt draw goes down, I want to say by the fourth power. So when you cut the air in half, you use a quarter of the power on the motor. So there are some things like that that we're doing that are helpful, but as far as a standard goes, we're always testing at that highest speed. Got it. The modes of testing, there are three that are stipulated in the standard plug-in watt meter, clamp-on watt meter, and house utility meter. Were you involved in the standard development? Do you know exactly why, or can you speculate? Yeah, I was involved in standards development. I sat on there with for a couple of years with that. And it goes back, I tell you, I had a conversation years ago with Warren Lupson, and I was really irritated that they put certain elements and standards. I'm like, who the heck would allow somebody to use a watt meter on their house to measure fan watt draw? How are you going to isolate everything down to the single meter? This is ridiculous, right? And Warren was like, if we make these standards too complex and too expensive, nobody's ever going to even entertain doing them. So sometimes there are things put into standards to make them palatable and affordable on the upfront. But I think most people, after they start doing the standard, they'll probably buy the right tools to do them. And obviously- They'll gravitate up. They'll gravitate up, yeah. But it's not that you, I think sometimes we put them in there because somebody's going to go, well, what if I just use the home watt meter? It's like, well, yeah, you could do that. Sure, it's not practical, but you can do it. So if you want to do it, you go ahead because that's a utility grade meter and- It'll get us the good results we need. And obviously, if they don't have everything isolated, they're just adding to their watt draw, and that's going to throw off their test. But you could do it theoretically. And obviously, you can go online. You can buy a watt meter, a utility-grade watt meter. You could probably use it independently if you wanted to and count the revolutions. We buy sublet meters for rentals and things like that. So I guess you could do that if you want to. You could do it, but it's just not practical. And I think also people need to understand that some of these tools aren't all made the same. Some of them use an estimated power factor, or they use an estimated voltage, or they use some other estimate in their calculations, where a true watt meter measures volts, and it measures amps, and it measures power factor. And it is volts times amps times power factor is watts. And that's what gives you a true watt draw. So using like a clamp-on is by far the best way that you can do. But again, there's challenges like some of the manufacturers don't have meters that have a low enough resolution. In other words, they can't resolve these low watt draws that some of this equipment can actually achieve. For example, if you're at 120 volts and your meter only has a resolution of one amp, well, 
you got 120 watts to work with if your power factor is 1.0. But some of these motors are drawing less than 60 watts. So you have to have a meter that has that capability of measuring that lower amp draw if you're going to actually get something valuable out of your meter. So that, again, makes it as a consumer of these products, you have to make sure that what you're buying is going to meet your needs. And if you're working on a lot of smaller tonnage equipment, you may find some challenges with some of the watt meters that are in the field today getting actually picking up a reading. Yeah, picking up a reading. Yeah. We didn't really realize this till we again we started with Measure Quick and people were calling us, hey, can you put our tool or this tool into the software platform? I'm like, sure. We test everything in our lab. As we're putting it in, we're finding out a lot of these meters just don't have that lower end resolution. And there are things you could do, like you could do a 10-loop multiplier if you wanted to make 10 loops of wire and amplify it and then just divide it by 10. There are ways to work around it, but they're not simple. They're just not as simple as clamping it on and making a measurement. So challenges always exist. Challenges come up, yeah. So you mentioned an element of the calculation there, power factor. Without getting too deep into it, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and in your experience in residential? Have you seen it vary? Have you been able to measure that? Yeah, power factor is all over the place in our industry because we're going to all these new DC motors. And so they can have power factors as low as like 0.45, all right? Or if you think about it, just like a power factor of 0.5, because it's a straight multiplication, right? So if it's volts times amps times power factor, if your power factor is 0.5, you're cutting your fan watt draw in half. If you're using a standard VOM and you're assuming a power factor of one, you just doubled your watt draw inadvertently right? Because if you knew the power factor, you'd cut it down to the appropriate power factor. It might be 0.45, 0.7, 0.5, whatever it is. So power factor, when you look at motors, the motor generates a magnetic field and the motor can be inductive or it can be capacitive. So it can have too much capacitance, you can have too much induction. And basically what that magnetic field is that expands and collapses it either creates a lead or a lag in the current. So we want what's called unity, which means that as the, again, on AC circuits, you have a, we always measure an RMS because the voltage is oscillating. So it starts out at zero and it peaks out at, a, let's say, 171 volts. And the root mean square of that, the, in other words, voltage under the curve is 120 volts. And as the voltage increases, so should the amperage increase. That would be a circuit that has perfect unity. So the volts go up, the amps go up proportionally. And if you're to look at that on a oscilloscope, that's what you would see. But in reality, we have some motors that are, let's say, highly inductive, and they have a magnetic field. And as that magnetic field collapses, going back the other way, it decreases the current draw on the motor. The current It slows down the current flow, and then we get a circuit that is inductive. And we usually correct that by adding a capacitor to the system to bring that back into unity. So when you're looking at a blower motor, typically when it's on high speed, because this is another interesting thing, the lower speeds of a motor don't have as good of a power factor. And on the older type motors, which are now actually banned for sale on equipment, PSC stuff's on the way out. We're going now with all the ECM technology. But on the older type motors, a low power factor was typically indicative of a lot of heat being generated. So it's wasted energy. It just goes to heat because the energy just turns from useful energy of rotating the motor to heat energy waste. 
On an ECM motor, we have low power factors, but it's for a different reason. It's just because the electronics and the way that they pulse the energy through. And actually, on an ECM motor, a low power factor is good. On a PSC motor, a low power factor is wasted heat energy. It's not good. So depending on the type of motor we're looking at, got to look at it both ways. For the listener here, there's a lot of detail and depth into the way these standards are developed. Jim is privy to, aware of, and contributing to a lot of these. And when it specifies a certain kind of equipment, it's because that's what you need to get the details out. That's what you need to be able to make a good judgment and to make a good rating using the standard. And just not to get completely frustrated with the standard. I mean, it's coming into this stuff. I guess my biggest frustration when I was a young teacher just starting teaching in this was my students would go, hey, Mr. Bergman, if we could use the formula this way, like in this case, it was we're calculating airflow by using temperature rise on a gas furnace. And he's like, hey, if we could calculate airflow this way, if we knew the airflow, could we calculate the B2 output of the appliance? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Let me take you out in the shop and show you how to do that. And I realized all the test instruments that I had, I couldn't get an airflow measurement to save my life. I was trying over and over and over again, and I kept getting a different answer every single time. And eventually I told my student, I'm like, Matt, some things can only be done in a lab. And he's like, Bergman. We are in a lab. I'm like, oh, I guess you're right. And it was that epiphany of like, we are in a lab where the conditions aren't changing. Like we're in a pretty big vocational school and the conditions in the school didn't change and ran the furnace that long. So it's like we had all these very stable variables. And I realized it was my test instruments that were my Achilles heel and my processes and not knowing how to use the test instruments and just So there's a huge learning curve. So as you buy these tools also, when you make the challenges, whenever you make a measurement, you really have to have an expectation of what the result's going to be. Otherwise, you're going to get an answer and you don't know whether it's the right or wrong answer. And that leads you down the path of when you know what your expectation is of your measurement, then you also got to know, okay, well, what's my tolerance also? So then you got to start to pick tools out that make sure that you can read that have the accuracy and then they have the precision. So accuracy, meaning that they can make the same measurement over and over again, whether it's right or wrong, it's accurate. Accurate, meaning it's against a reference instrument. It's going to have the same reading. Precise, meaning it'll do it over and over again. So a lot of instruments can be very accurate, but only under one set of conditions. And they start to lose their precision when you have variables that are introduced in. Other instruments like Trueflow Grid, you really can't screw that up too much it's pretty easy to get a very repeatable and accurate measurement where like a vein anemometer because of things like vein overrun and positioning and holding and where you make your measurement, and how far away you make it from the girl, you can introduce a lot of error very quickly. But if you use it properly, it could be also very precise and very accurate. But most of us have never learned to use it properly. It took me two years to learn how to use a vein to get an accurate, repeatable measurement. But once I learned it, it was great, but it's not the easiest method. So as a look at these tools, we've got to look at a lot of different variables to make sure we're getting the right stuff. And this is where having somebody to consult with before you buy this stuff sometimes can be invaluable too. True. Thank you. One question, portable plug-in watt meter. Have you seen that used? Do you know of an application where that would be used? That's probably like that kilowatt meter. So it's just a 115-volt plug-in. And get out in certain areas of the country, they actually use a plug on the appliance instead of being hardwired in. They have a 115-volt outlet in the attic. They plug the furnace in, so you can unplug the furnace, plug the watt meter in, plug the furnace into the watt meter, then you can measure 
power, power factor. I think they probably started doing that specifically to use that type of a watt meter because those were really some of the first watt meters that were available. I mean, those go back 20 years. Because they combined all the factors you mentioned. Yeah, they do do all the factors. They're relatively inexpensive, but they only really work if your local code will allow you to use an outlet and a plug to run your appliance. A lot of them are required to be hardwired into a circuit with a switch and things. So they require a clamp meter, which would be a little bit easier to use in that application. Again, that's the nature of a national standard. It has to include so many variations in application in the marketplace. And that's why you have some flexibility in what you can use for the steps. So let's move into the evaluation of refrigerant charge. That was, for those listening, task number four in ResNet ECA ANSI ICC standard 310. It's got a very long name. Task number five is evaluation of refrigerant charge. Why do we measure that? Why is that important? I mean, refrigerant is the fluid that's doing the heat transfer. And what's interesting is any charge but the correct charge causes a decrease in peak efficiency of the equipment. And we always talk about when do we need peak efficiency? Well, when we're at peak load, typically. And so this really becomes important if we're trying to manage our, our infrastructure, a national electric grid, because we don't want air conditioners consuming any more power than they have to when we're at peak heat requirements and peak load on the grid. So a system that's undercharged is going to run longer than it should. So it's never going to shut off. It's just never going to shut off. And so once it hits, and we always have what's called a balance point. So let's say you design your system for 95 degrees. And so theoretically, once it hits 95, it should run continuously. And it might, let's say, power off in the evening, once it drops below 95, it can actually now meet the space cooling requirement and it would power off. We get systems in our industry that when they're undercharged, once it hits 95, they can't keep up and the space temperature continues to rise. So if it's set at 75, it, when it finally hits that, it starts to cool off in the evening, it's 78, 79 degrees in the house. So now the equipment runs all night long to try and catch up. And by the time it actually starts the next day again, it's still running. And so if we can't cycle that equipment off, then we have losses. And once you use a watt, obviously you can't ever get it back. So it's real important we have these things charged because we want to make sure that they can keep up and cycle off when the load conditions become lower. And same thing if we overcharge a system, it actually consumes more power while it's operating. So the way that we've classically achieved higher efficiencies in our industry is by oversizing condensers. If we make the condenser larger, it lowers the compression ratio. But when you overcharge a system, you're simply like backfilling that condenser with liquid and you're effectively turning your condensing space into an extension of the liquid line. So you end up inadvertently making your larger condenser with this additional condensing space smaller because you've just backfilled it with all this liquid and turned it into liquid line. And so any efficiency gain that you may have realized, you've now lost. Again, especially at peak load conditions. But regardless, an overcharge or undercharge is going to impact the system throughout the entire operating range of the load, but we'll really see it under peak load conditions. So any charge but the correct charge is going to cause problems with operating efficiency and longevity of the equipment because obviously equipment that never runs 
will last forever. But if it's got to run twice as long, it's going to wear out faster. So we're looking at these types of things. Getting that charge right can actually significantly extend the life of the equipment. And obviously, when we talk about charging, we also, I can't stress enough the importance of a proper evacuation because the only thing we want in that system is refrigerant. We got to make sure we get all the moisture out, we get all the air out, because once we introduce refrigerant oil and non-condensables, air and moisture in the system, we make a little chemical plant and that little chemical plant could never be undone. And it's so important that we get that evacuation done properly also as part of the charging process. So at a high level, that's what we're talking about. Now we can get into the weeds a little bit if you want to talk about the type of charging and long-term maintenance of that. I do want to just jump back and mention a comment. You talked about the correct charge is it's designed for the load, which is from the region, the design of the house, all kinds of factors. So I just want to draw everyone back to the fact that these steps in this 310 standard operate in the way they do because design is so important. That's got to be nailed down correctly. And then you move on to the subsequent steps. And each one of them can feed back. To get the optimum out, you want to hit peak performance at each one of these factors. And that's why the standard's designed as it is. So everything is stacked one after the other. Well, the other thing we all have to appreciate is that we're trying to do more with less. And what I mean by that is we're trying to do more work with less refrigerant and consume more amounts of watts. So we want to reduce the raw materials that go into the air conditioner as well as the energy it consumes. And so we're using equipment today with things like microchannel coils, which have, when they're talking about microchannels, I mean, we're talking about passages that are no longer three-eighths of an inch in diameter. They're down to the width of a sewing needle. So very, very small passages that increase the heat transfer in and out of the refrigerant. They're using materials that are providing better heat transfer. But now, because that coil passage is so small, there's no room for error. So an ounce or two of gas can literally cause an air conditioner or a heat pump to trip a high-pressure switch during peak load period. So it used to be we could be off a quarter or a half a pound. Now we can't be off but a few ounces on some of these systems. They're so critically charged. So the way that we charge the systems is important, but also the way that we maintain the systems is important because as soon as you hook up a hose, you could pull several ounces of gas into your hose and compromise the charge, or you could introduce non-condensables. But additionally, and this goes segues into the standard is, well, if this charge is so critical, how can we send a auditor out to evaluate the refrigerant charge without compromising the integrity of the system? This is where we really thought through standard 310. And I always like to preface this with a little bit of a story just so people understand this because most people don't appreciate all the background that goes into this. Yeah. The background, yeah. Because our industry for years, if you're going into a vocational school, a trade school, a union apprenticeship, whatever, somebody probably told you your gauges are like one of your most important tools. And one of the most important things you need to do on every system is gauge up and check the refrigerant charge. And that's like the worst thing that we could be doing. In fact, I always go back to like your doctor and vitals. Checking refrigerant charge is like taking a blood sample every time you go to the doctor. There'd be a tremendous amount of unnecessary risk by poking you with a hypodermic needle of, of something going wrong, infection, vein collapse. Some, there's just nothing good comes from drawing blood on a regular basis. We try not to do that unless it's absolutely necessary. 
and you go to your doctor, they're not going to draw blood unless it's absolutely necessary. And we shouldn't check refrigerant charge in an evasive way by putting gauges on the system unless it's absolutely necessary. And some of you guys, listeners might think that's a little crazy, but let me just think about this for a minute. All of us have a refrigerator in our home. And most of you, I would say 99% of you have never had anybody put gauges on your refrigerator. And if you came home tonight and your refrigerator, your partner called you and said, hey, it's, my milk is too warm in the refrigerator. Well, the last thing you're going to do is pull the refrigerator out from the wall, take the back oven off and, and put charging ports on it and check and see if it's what the refrigerant charge looks like. And there actually aren't charging points on it. There's no charging ports on it for that very reason. Yeah. So it's a sealed system, right? So you would make sure the door gaskets are look good, make sure nothing was blocking the door and keeping it open. Maybe make sure the condenser down below doesn't need vacuumed out. But the last thing you would do is violate the integrity of a sealed system. Yet that's the first thing every contractor in this country does when they walk up to a system and install a set of gauges. And we have to stop that practice because once a system is charged properly, the refrigerant, it never wears out. It should never leak out. It should never come out. Your home air conditioner is as much of a sealed system as your refrigerator. The only difference is it has some access ports that are put in in the field because it requires a field charging process. Your home refrigerator is a package system, comes from a factory where they can do the evacuation at the factory, the charge at the factory, seal it off and ship it to you. So the manufacturing's finished. It's finished. At the home. Yeah. The last step happens. In our case, the last step happens at home. So somebody has to physically run a line set between the indoor and outdoor pieces. They need to evacuate the air out. They need to charge it with the right amount of refrigerant based upon the line set length and the lift and some other variables. But once that system is charged, you should never, ever have to put gauges on the system again. And in case in point, Greg Boken, who works for you, we we're just talking about this yesterday. I put his system in his for his dad almost 30 years ago. This is back, my dad, 30 years ago, used the thermal engineering micron gauge, the old needle gauge. We evacuated every system. Everything had a micron gauge on it. We pulled it down below 500 microns. We charged it properly. Greg has never, ever checked the charge on that equipment in 30 years. And all he's done is just hose out the condenser annually, wash it out with water, and that's and change his home filter. And that is the most main, he's never even opened the electrical control compartment of it because it's never had a failure. And 30 years of operation without checking the charge is proof that is if you do a proper installation, use proper brazing practices, you pressure test it, make sure that it holds a pressure and it doesn't leak. And then you do a proper evacuation. You get out the air and you get out the moisture and then you get it charged properly. Then not only do you get longevity, but Craig's never spent a nickel on refrigerant on that system. And now I think he's to the point where, because he's such a miser, he's going to let it run till it dies just to see how long it'll go. This is a testament to what proper installation can do for your company. Because here's the thing. If I was still a contractor, I could focus on selling new systems to all my clients instead of servicing all the stuff that I installed. I've never had to go over to Greg's home for service. And guess what? If I still own a service company, I bet you a dime to dollar, Greg would call me again and say, hey, the system's 35 years old. It's finally give up the ghost. Could you come over and put a new one in? You know, we're in a climate, by the way, Ohio, if this was the same system in Arizona, it would probably be at the equivalent of, let's say, the 12 to 15 year mark. Because in Arizona, they have 
two to three times the run hours that we have in Ohio. So a 30-year-old, so don't think of this as, wow, I'll never sell another system again. In Ohio, Greg's changed his furnace out twice over the course of this lifetime versus an air conditioner once. So again, that climate zone becomes very important because that's going to dictate run hours. So this stuff, like standard 310, especially for air conditioning, absolutely critical in our whole Southern hemisphere, Florida, Texas, Arizona, because they're going to see by far the most energy impact by getting the stuff right versus up north where it's, it is going to have an impact, but not near what we'd see in the Southern hemisphere. So the refrigerant charge check is either weigh-in verification or non-invasive temperature. The weigh-in would be done by a licensed certified technician. It's just documentation with a scale, more or less a visual indicator that somebody, to be honest with you, weigh-in's not my favorite because you have to 100% believe that the factory got the right amount of refrigerant in when they weighed it in. And not saying the factory doesn't do a good job all the time, but they also are subject to human error and they're also subject to things like valve maybe leaking during shipping. There's a lot of refrigerant loss during shipping a product. There's been some studies shown recently on that. But I think checking the charge by superheat or checking the charge by subcooling initially for a contractor is the best way to charge the system. And then once we know the system's charged properly, we can obviously use non-evasive tools, which I think we're going to get to in a second to actually check the charge. If you could describe that, that might be something new to the listeners. What's interesting is it's probably new to the listeners, but it's definitely not new to the industry. We've been doing this forever. Most of the time, it's refrigeration guys that do this. And it's because refrigeration, in refrigeration, the airflow is set by the manufacturer. So you buy your furnace, it's an engineered solution. The airflow, that somebody selects a fan that moves right amount of airflow across the evaporator coil. It's always going to be right. Airflow is always going to be right. So that takes a variable out that we have in the air conditioning industry that is a challenge for us, which is setting the airflow right. Historically, if you can't get the airflow right, then you really can't use a non-invasive method. So let's start with that because you need to know what the airflow is in order to use a non-invasive method. And the only reason you need to know it is because the airflow affects the design temperature difference across the evaporator coil. So you're going to hear this, talk about this a little bit, DTD, design temperature difference or CTOA, condensing temp over ambient. And that's just how much colder by design is the evaporator coil than the air going across it, than the return air. And how much hotter is a condenser by design than the air going across it, than the outdoor air. So when we talk about heat only travels one direction from hot to cold. So our evaporator always has to be colder than a return air. And our condenser has to be hotter than our outdoor air to reject heat into the outdoor air because heat's going to go from the hotter condenser to the cooler outdoor air. So even if the air outside is 120, the condenser has to be, let's say, 140 degrees. It has to be hotter than the outdoor air to reject the heat into the outdoor air. So if you hold your hand over your condenser outdoors, your outdoor unit, and it's in a cooling mode, you're going to feel heat coming out of the top of the fan. If you go in your house and you hold your hand over a supply vent, you're going to feel cool air coming out because we absorbed heat from the return air into the refrigerant. Then the compressor's job is to raise it in temperature, is to raise the refrigerant in temperature so we can reject the heat energy outdoors. So design temperature difference is once it's set, in other words, once your airflow is set, and for a typical system operating at 400 CFM per ton, 
the evaporator coil is 35 degrees colder than the return air. And then depending on the condenser you select, it could be anywhere from 20 to 10 degrees hotter than the outdoor air. So how do we get a lower DTD? A larger condenser. So if you have more surface area, you can reject the same quantity because remember, heat is a measure, it's a quantity of energy where temperature is a measure of heat intensity. So in order to remove the same quantity of heat, we can either have more surface area or smaller surface area and a higher temperature. So there's a temperature to surface area relationship that we have to consider. And that's all, again, part of design. Two points there, though, is you have some rails on temperature because of freezing. And we're also talking air conditioning mode only right now. Yeah, dehumidification. Yeah, we don't want the moisture. And that's an interesting thing people don't think about is once your coil falls below the dew point temperature, you can't stop the moisture from condensing on the evaporator coil. It's just going to happen. There's two types of load we remove. There's latent load, and latent load is the hidden heat. So it's the energy that goes into the coil by converting the water vapor in the air to liquid water. And then there's a sensible load, which is the actual reduction in temperature of the air by removing the sensible heat from the air to obviously reject both the sensible energy and the latent energy at your condenser because we absorb both of them at the evaporator coil. So let's get back to non-invasive system tests. Mm -hmm. How does that work? What are the real basic steps? The real basics of it are at a fundamental level. We just need to know what the design temperature difference is for the evaporator and the condensing temperature over ambient for the condenser. So those two numbers are really, really important because those are designed or engineered into the system. And we actually have to measure them because they are impacted by the installation and the airflow that the contractor selects. So if you have airflow, let's say less than 400 CFM per ton, you're going to have a colder evaporator coil. So that means you're going to have a higher DTD. If you're Airflow is above 400 CFM per ton. I'm going to have a lower DTD. And that can also be impacted like if you select a larger evaporator coil. So sometimes we'll match up a two and a half ton evaporator with a two ton condenser. Manufacturers allow that. And so that'll impact your DTD. So what we want to do in the field is as a contractor, as a technician, you want to very carefully measure and record that DTD because that will allow non-evasive testing to be used going forward. So use that in conjunction with your superheat. So just to give you an example that's real easy to remember if you're because our industries use these numbers forever. Typically if we had a 75 degree return air, we would have a 40 degree evaporator. So 75 minus 40 is 35 degrees. That's the design temperature difference. It's how much colder is my evaporator coil than my return air. So my evaporator coil is 40 my return air is 75, 75 minus 40, there's 35 degrees DTD. So that's the temperature, 40 degrees is the temperature of my evaporator. So if I was a contractor and went out and said, hey, 75 degree return air, my DTD is 35, 75 minus 35, I'd expect to see a 40 degree evaporator coil, okay? That's the temperature of the evaporator coil itself. So just basic math. Now, if I know my target superheat, and superheat is how much warmer is my suction line than my evaporator coil? So in, in this case, most of the time target superheat would be about 10 degrees, 10 to 12 degrees. So I took my 75 degree return air minus my DTD of 35. I had a 40 degree coil. And if I add 10 degrees to that, 
10 degrees of superheat, I would expect my suction line temperature to be about 50 degrees of temperature, right? 40 plus 10 is 50, plus or minus 5 degrees. So if I was anywhere between 55 and 45, my suction line temperature is falling within the acceptable range that would be allowable for the non-invasive test. So it's just simply if I know the target superheat and I know the design temperature difference, and it was recorded at the time of installation, because a DTD won't always be 35 exactly. It could be 35, it could be 37, it could be 32, because in some cases, we only have like three speeds to pick from. So the lowest speed might be a little too low and the medium speed might be a little too high. And you got to make a decision as a contractor, do I want a little bit more dehumidification or a little bit more sensible cooling? When you pick that speed, that's going to dictate your DTD, your design temperature difference. And that's why we want to say, okay, now I'm going to measure my return air, look at my coil temp, figure out what my DTD is and record it so that anybody coming in after you, like a rater or another technician, can now use non-invasive testing going forward to determine if the superheat is in the right range. So it's all about this. You got to assume the airflow is correct, because that's going to be part of what's affecting the load on the system. And then it's the response of the system in its, the line temperatures of the refrigerant, of the working fluid. And that's why we measure the refrigerant line temperature. We don't really have to assume the airflow is correct because we have tools like TrueFlow Grid. We can right, set we've it. already tested it. Yeah. So you've moved through the standard. That's why airflow comes before refrigerant charge. Yes. In the standard. Okay, thank you. Once we get the airflow correct, then that's going to dictate our design temperature difference. And again, because these are field-installed systems, each installation is unique. And each equipment is going to have its own unique operation, but within a very finite range of what's acceptable. Because obviously, like you said earlier, once the coil falls below 32 degrees, it's going to make ice. And if the coil gets above 45 degrees, it's not going to really provide you with ample dehumidification. If you're in Arizona, you may not care. If you're in Florida, it's going to be a huge deal. So we have to look at those elements of the design and make sure that we're setting up equipment correctly for the environmental variables that we're dealing with. Otherwise, we're not going to get satisfactory operation or we're going to get excessive energy consumption. One of the two. There's no free lunch. No. <laughs> that could be the title of the episode. Well, thank you for summarizing. It gave us a real deep, deep dive, but I think we've surfaced now and understand you've talked about the consequences going down the road, why we measure one way versus another way, why certain methods aren't being used, and what happens if these factors are not right. And you gave some really interesting perspectives on refrigerant charge and peak load and peak efficiency and how all these things stack up and you can really affect what's happening at the utility level by getting these factors right. So you've done a great job in checking all the boxes here on my list of questions. My life's aspiration is checking boxes. <laughs> checking boxes. My life work is done. Your life work is done. Jim, if anyone wants to get in touch, learn a little bit more about what you do and some of the things you talked about, what's the best way? Jim at measurequick.com is probably the easiest way. We have some pretty cool videos too on YouTube. If you just search measure quick and non-evasive testing, or even if you probably have some on True Tech Tools YouTube channel too, but we've done a lot of videos on how to do utilize non-evasive testing methods. 
that might be very helpful if you want to delve a little bit deeper into that, because we only really talked about the evaporator side. There's also the condenser side, but it's similar math and similar principles. But those videos are available. And yeah, please feel free to reach out. And if you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Because we're really trying to do it, measure quick is make standards of compliance easy and achievable. And software is another step you can do that. It's not required, but it can make this stuff a lot more palatable for a contractor. Thank you. And thank you for being a good friend and steward to the industry. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Res Talk podcast. If you're pro in the building market, surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more or to join the email list. You can always find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter. A quote for today related to the episode. This is by Albert Einstein. The only source of knowledge is experience. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you heard here today or would like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, please do so. And as always, thank you for listening to ResTalk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spone and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for Res Talk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes or the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk. <laughs>